Welcome to Out of Rich Darkness. I'm Camille Savage-Kroll. And I'm Elena Chia. We're both professors at the University of Music in Freiburg, Germany. In this podcast, we reimagine the ways in which we learn and make music and explore how it can be part of a holistic, healthy way of being in the world. For our second season, we've brought in some help in the form of experts from different fields, ranging from environmental activism to visual arts, who can help us see where our blind spots might be and inspire us to dream bigger. I'm so grateful to today's guest, Jason Alexander Holmes for taking the time to share about his musical journey, including what it means to be a black person and an educational leader in the field of classical music. Jason is the artistic director of the Cincinnati Boy Choir. Previously, he served as the director of educational programming at the Boston Children's Chorus, where he oversaw the musical and social education of over 400 singers. As you will hear, Jason has a beautiful and powerful bass baritone voice. As a performer, he is at home in the worlds of opera as well as musical theater. Choirs under Jason's direction are consistently praised not only for their energetic yet unified tone and engaging performance, but also for the expressive ways in which singers use their voices and bodies to communicate. Additionally, Jason is known for innovative programming which celebrates the cultural context in which his choirs operate while encouraging singers and audiences alike to stretch their awareness by living in musical worlds to which they may not be accustomed. Pedagogically, Jason is committed to implementing culturally responsive practices in music education, and he has given many workshops and conference sessions on this topic. At the core of Jason's teaching and performing is the belief that we are all expressive and musical beings who deserve to witness and participate regularly in moments of truth and beauty. At the end of our conversation, we share ideas about how institutions of higher learning might start to open up to new possibilities and become more inclusive. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Right to begin, I would just like to thank you again um, for taking time to talk with me. I know you have so much going on right now, um, and it really means a lot to me that uh, that you've made the time for this conversation. So thank you. Um, and thank you, and thank you for the same thing. It's always good to to chat with folks and kind of get some ideas going. So I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity. Also, thank you. Thanks very much. Well, we actually had we studied at the same place many many years ago the Eastman School Mm -hmm. of Music and um, and we didn't have a whole lot of uh, direct interactions I think we overlapped briefly but we definitely had some of the same mentors which I would like to get into a little bit later in the conversation but to start us off I'm wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about your background before you came to Eastman um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering specifically if there were moments in your childhood of listening to music or making music which were formative for you, and then kind of your your path to to Eastman. 
Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's funny. I think my whole childhood was a moment, <laughs> like, like one big collective moment of music wow. making that was formative to me. Um, <clears throat> so I grew up in Southern Virginia, Southern rural Virginia. The town is Ridgeway. Um, but I didn't even grow up in the town of Ridgeway. <laughs> I grew up in like the, the surrounding countryside of, okay. of Ridgeway. Um, and I guess my first music experiences were at home with my mom. Followed very quickly, uh, with my mom and dad, followed, followed quickly by uh, making music at church. Um, and that was, you know, singing in the, the young people's choir at my church. Uh, then it morphed into playing the piano and organ um, with a bunch of different choir, like church choirs. Um, and school music. Um, in elementary school, we had itinerant music. So it'd be like six weeks of music and then six weeks of art and you know, and so on oh, and so forth. Yeah. So it wasn't a full year thing. And I, when I, whenever I think back on that, I'm like, God bless those teachers who like wow. every six weeks had to like pack up and move to a new school and like learn all, you know, 500 students, you know, in that wow. school and then del somehow deliver a curriculum. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting experience. And now as an educator thinking about it, it's even more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and then most of my school music was in, um, in secondary school, was in band. Um, I kind of tangentially participated in choir. Um, you know, we kind of stole an enrichment block here or there <laughs> to be involved with the choir. Um, and then, of course, in uh, school musicals uh, in high school. So uh, that was that. Well, that's really interesting. So your early music um, experiences with your mother, was she a musician or was music just part of your home life? It was just part of my home life. Okay. Even now when I go home, like my mom is always singing, <laughs> like wow. always singing. So. <laughs> I might also be an annoying mother. <laughs> that's great. But at the same time, <laughs> excuse me, it's very soothing, mm -hmm. um, you know, just that sound of the mom's voice, the mother's mm -hmm. voice. Um, yeah. So I think an, an ardent lover of music, um, and I don't think she would call herself a trained musician, mm -hmm. um, but definitely a lover of music and not shy about singing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. So your your time with your mother, and then you mentioned church choir, which is something that is it, it involves other people. It's it's a very yeah. communal activity, and I know that's um, still a, a really big part of your life as a musician today. The main part, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, and and was it that was it that communal sense? Um, you, you mentioned also later band and um, and musicals. Those are all things that are. Um, of course, you have to practice, have a solo practice as a musician. But all of those things that you mentioned have to do with making music with other people. Um, yeah, I mean, the social aspect for me was really important, right? You know, I was kind of a nerdy kid in the rest of my high school, but, you know, with my, you know, band friends or musical friends, I was just a kid, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So, and we, you know, shared similar interests. Um, and, you know, connected to that communal sense is this idea of sharing that has been, I mean, from the very first time someone asked me to write my philosophy of music education, um, it's been about sharing um, because, you know, people shared experiences with me. You know, I think of my 
middle school choral director who, again, I wasn't enrolled in choir, but like she figured out a way <laughs> to, to kind of beef up the choir during some um, otherwise, I won't say useless, but maybe low on the usefulness <laughs> scale <laughs> blocks of time. Okay. Um, and she kind of recruited some folks. Um, and really, you know, it came from her needing boys in the choir yeah. uh, who were well-behaved. Um, I was most uh, most often well-behaved. <laughs> Not always, but most often. <laughs> um, so, you know, it took her being willing to do that. And then along with that, you know, it didn't just stop at being in choir. It was, oh, wow, it seems like you're really passionate about this and you have these skills that you've brought with you. How can we use them in our program? Um, mm. And how? what can I do to help? you keep developing your passion. And so that was sharing, uh, definitely. I mean, and that's not to say that the programs that she recommended were free. They most certainly were not. Mm -hmm. But even sharing the knowledge of those programs uh, and allowing me to share what I already knew coming into the classroom Mm, uh, was very important. So... And that is so important. I mean, it's amazing to me every time I hear experiences where people, even in this setting where there's a lot of people involved, I mean, choirs are are always involving a lot of different people, but when there's really a focus still on people as individuals and in investing in them as as individuals, um, and I hear that in your story as well. Yeah, for sure. And it's something that I come back to over and over in my own work. Uh, and to be quite honest, it's easy to forget, you know. I always talk about, like, my first um, choral teaching, like, real, real job job <laughs> thing. You know, there were, like, 170 kids in a fourth grade choir. And it's easy to forget individuals when there are 170 of them and you meet, you know, once or twice a week before for an hour before school. Um, you know, that you, you feel this pressure to get things done. Yeah. But, you know, thankfully, I saw a lot of the kids, you know, as their general music teacher also in smaller mm-hmm. groups. Um, so I, I recognize, I guess I say all that to say that I recognize the challenge of seeing individuals um, as they kind of contribute to the group. Yeah, yeah, it's so important. And then how did you get to the point where you thought, okay, I want to make this my life and I want to study at a conservatory? Yeah, (laughs) it really came down to having to understand exactly what I was passionate about. and it was music. And even though I was in band, I realized that I got more joy out of um, out of singing and, and being in groups of singers. Um, so there was a, a voice teacher in my area who also lived, you know, out, outside of town with the cows. <laughs> um, uh, and she had gone to Eastman as an undergrad, no, as a master's student, like, years and years ago i mean she was in her 80s when she taught me so a long time ago like with william warfield she was there so (laughs) um she she planted that seed of hey this is a place that you might want to look into um because she remembered what it had done for her now obviously i'm sure it changed a lot since she went there but at least the seed was planted i mean it kind of gets back to that sharing thing uh, and even with her, voice lessons for an hour were $10. Like, an hour-long wow. voice lesson was $10. Wow. Because she knew the community, and she was also doing it for her love of, of sharing this 
this art form with folks. Um, <clears throat> so I guess that's where the seed was planted for Eastman. And once we decided that I wanted to audition there, um, I mean, I picked some other, some other places also, uh, funny enough, I auditioned at Cincinnati, um, CCM okay. and, uh, here I am in Cincinnati yeah. now. <laughs> I didn't go to CCM, so <laughs> I don't know what's up with that gravitational pull, <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> and then at a, at another school, Appalachian State in, in North Carolina. Um, and those were the only three. I mean, when I got to college and realized that some people auditioned at 10 schools, I was like, Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I, that's a thing, I guess. Um, <laughs> I didn't have the time or the money to do that, but right. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my path. Um, okay. And then there was a connection between Susan Conkling, um, who we she's a common mentor for both mm -hmm. of us, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and a lot of folks. Yeah. Uh, so Susan Conkling and one of the people who. Um, worked with this music camp that I had gone to a lot in my kind of high school and middle, middle school years. Um, so, you know, again, thinking about that communal connectedness, right, they were able to to chat about what would be best for me, you know, having a conversation yeah. that I didn't even know about, right? Wow. Um, wow. So, what a gift. Yeah. Yeah, it was truly a gift, and I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, I'm also so grateful for those people who, who saw something um, that – could be my thing even before I did. Yeah, yeah. It really is a gift that I'm that I'm eternally grateful for. Yes, for sure. So when you look back on your time at Eastman, which is a while ago now, oh! um, <laughs> three, four years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I know when I look back, I mean, at the time when I was there, I was also just incredibly grateful to be there and a little overwhelmed. Um, and, and I still am very grateful for many reasons that I was able to study there. But with distance, and it has been now about 15 years, um, longer. It's been longer. Now it's that scary. I look, <laughs> it is scary. Now that I look back, um, no, about 15 years. Now that I look back at, at my time there, um, I also see a lot of things, and I know some of those things have changed since, but there are a lot of areas um, that, were problematic that I also see continuing today in, in music studies. And um, one of the things that I haven't reflected on a lot because it didn't and doesn't apply to me is what is it like to be a person of color in an institution that is um, mostly white? And I mean, I have to say, music schools are, are probably <laughs> a little bit maybe a little bit better than um, than some other places because we have people from all over the world who are interested in mm -hmm. studying at a very high level when you get to that kind of conservatory. But still, um, diversity at, at music schools is what I would consider a problem. And I'm wondering, was that something that you, um, and I apologize, I hardly even know how to ask these questions right because it's not it's something hard. that I've really concerned myself with, but was this was this something that, that you felt when you were studying or was it, what, how, how did you experience that yourself? You know, I, I felt it a little bit. Um, I definitely felt, well, it, it didn't start at Eastman, that feeling, right? Right. Um, you know, being even, so growing up in Southern Virginia, I'm so happy to have gone to a high school that was, um, you know, was almost 50-50 in terms of whiteness and blackness there. Wow. Um, and I think a lot of people have a misconception about the southern U.S., uh, but in some ways in the South, um, 
there's more mixture, at least in school settings, right? So, um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. But, you know, when, once you decide that you're going to study music, um, and that you're going to be kind of serious about this music thing, then you learn that, um, there are certain musics that are more privileged, right? Um, so classical music, whatever, (laughs) we were just talking about whatever classical music means, right? Um, so European classical music is, you know, where people kind of push you to study, right? And if you're going to get into music school, you need to be able to perform this kind of music, right? So once you throw yourself into performing and learning, and I would even say learning to love that mm-hmm. kind of music, because it still is a, a, a big passion in my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful for my knowledge and, you know, um, practice of that kind of music. Um but anyway, once you find yourself in those spaces, you do look around as a black person and notice that it's only you, right? Um, and even in some of the um, some of the music camps, right, you realize that there's um, there's a small community of black folk who find each other <laughs> and tend mm-hmm. to stay with each other to be, you know, to feel that sense of community um, and to have that sense that you can just kind of be who you are um, without people either kind of interrogating who you are, asking you to change who you are, or, um, you know, it's almost like this veneration of who you are, but within that veneration, it's it kind of only amplifies the difference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I would say that that's a thing that started before Eastman, um, that continued at Eastman, you know, mm-hmm. I was often in rooms where it was only me. Um, yeah. Wow. And it was, I, I'm thankful for people who, I'm thankful to be able to have been able to find communities of, of black people and, you know, and they were not always in the Eastman community, but sometimes within the larger Rochesterian yeah. uh, community. Um, so, and that was really important for me. Uh, it's the same in Cincinnati, really. Mm-hmm. You know, when you walk into a room of arts leaders, um, you walk into a room that is very white. Yeah. And I mean, in the color of people, but also in the, you know, customs and traditions and yeah. the values, uh, you know, it's full of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I found it important here even to um, to seek out communities of black people mm-hmm. um, who who I knew would, em- would embrace me and... Um, yeah, that was it. it. The place where it was a little different was in Boston with the Boston Children's Chorus. Uh, because of the Children's Chorus mission, it, um, you know, there were people of color. But, you know, I will never forget the look on, you know, the black moms and dads and grand grandparents' faces, you know, when I was still new there. And, you know, they would come in to the office and I would be sitting at my desk and, you know, someone would introduce me. This is Jason Holmes. He's one of our new conductors. And like, there was this look of shock and pride and, you know, like, Oh "Oh, wow, you're a conductor. Um, so yeah, that, that feeling is there in different ways and people respond to it in different ways. Um, maybe one other example is during my elementary student teaching, a first grade student who was black, a black boy, I mean, he saw me with a teacher, like, ID badge, right? And he just kind of looks at it and says, you're a teacher? Mm -hmm. Um, And it was, again, it was like disbelief 
it was comfort. It was like all of those feelings in his voice and in his kind of body language. And probably affirmation that you are exactly where you need to be because you are so needed in that role. And it's unfortunate that it's so rare that it's surprising. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just shows, I mean, that's just a, a reaffirmation of how desperately we need role models of all kinds. We um, do. For our kids and for our students and in leadership yeah. positions. It's affirming, but it's also indicative of, of a burden, kind of, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, because when you realize, and it also makes you question yourself all the time. I think I'm we sure. all deal with, um, oh gosh, what is it called when you're uh, imposter syndrome, yes. <laughs> right? Yes. I think we all deal with that. Um, yeah. There's another layer of that when yeah. you realize that someone appreciates you um, because right. you look like them, right? right? And right. and then you start to wonder, wait, did someone else know that? And then that's why I got this yeah. job. Or like, right. it, it just, it plays with your mind all the yeah. time. <laughs> and it takes a lot of kind of self-talk and community <laughs> healing to yeah. to kind of keep going in, in, in the direction. And also knowing that, you know, when once you feel like I'm supposed to be here, um, because of you know these reasons that we just that we've just talked about, um, how will I know when it's time to move on? Yeah. And can I move on without guilt? Um, and I think mm -hmm. every teacher who's left a teaching job feels some kind of guilt, right? <laughs> because the yeah. only way to do it well is to form relationships and strong relationships. So when you have to break those relationships by you know saying that you're going to be absent, then it's just hard for everyone. But again, there's another layer when you're like. And if they don't hire someone who looks like me, you're going to feel alone again, right. you know? Right. Um, wow. So that's, you know, there's affirmation. There's also the, the kind of burden. It's really interesting what you were just saying. I mean, some of the things you were just saying, I never, I never would have even thought about some things really sure. resonate with me also as a woman, because this is another thing. A lot of times I'm one of very few women in a room in academia. Yeah. But, um, but what you were just saying, too, about when is it okay to leave and, and realizing that you are, you're potentially leaving a hole um, yeah. that is more than just your personality. It's, it's leaving a hole because people are not being able to see themselves anymore in a, in a certain way. I, wow. I mean, I, I just imagine that this is also exhausting. Um, it can be, yeah. <laughs> and, and, I mean, honestly, something else that just kind of went ding. Um, with me when you were talking about your um, your experience as a student in Rochester and also finding a community outside of the music conservatory world and, and also now in Cincinnati, um, realizing that that's something I never had to do. I mm. never had to think um, about finding a community of people like me because, yeah. of course, we're all individuals and we have very different backgrounds, but um, that was not something that, that ever crossed my mind, to be honest. Um, and and that of course that's that is also an an extra layer of um of in a sense of self-care that you're responsible for because it's yeah. not part of the package um yeah exactly the um you know and i will say going back to to susan conkling she was starting to question that you know yeah. at eastland yeah. to say yeah. where what is the community that our black students can find and, you know, she was starting to question it because 
so many black students were dropping out, you know, <laughs> they you know, were not able to sustain themselves, you know, in, in this conservatory. And it wasn't because they didn't have skills. It wasn't because, um, you know, they, they shouldn't have been there um, in terms of on, on a skill level and passion level with everyone else. Yeah. It was because that we all need community to kind yes. of survive. And it wasn't there to bolster. So, um, yeah. and again, that was, a, that, that was years ago, <laughs> right. Right? right? And, you know, that was before Black Lives Matter was a movement. Uh, and so I can only imagine being her, being a white woman in these rooms full of mostly white men Right. And having people look at her like she was crazy. And I mean, yes. she shared those experiences yes. with me that, yes. you know, that people just kind of looked at her like, well, that's not a problem. What are you talking about? Yeah. So. Yeah. I've also, I also remember her hinting at things like that. I know that, that yeah. when she took some stands, it was not always well received. Right. Um, but it is, it is all the more, um, it is all the more an, an example to me and a reminder that, um, that I have to put myself in uncomfortable situations, um, yeah. and and I have to go in even when it doesn't when it doesn't feel right, and I have to speak up um, even when I feel very powerless, uh, which yeah. is sometimes the case. For but, sure. Um, you, I'm so glad you keep mentioning Susan because um, <laughs> she, yeah, I would I would love to talk just a little bit more about her with you if that's all right. Um, yeah, happy to. I I went back. Um, before we had this conversation just recently and looked at her um, Facebook page. And I think maybe I have to say for people who don't know her um, a little bit about who she was. Dr. Susan Wharton Conkling uh, was a professor that we both had at, at Eastman. She then moved to Boston University and, um, and continued though for both of us to be someone who was a really um, big influence on our lives and she supported I know she supported me in in multiple ways I sometimes yeah. even after I moved to Germany would ask her if if we could Skype and, and we would get on Skype and talk about things that um, that I was thinking about and and sometimes really when I wasn't sure which direction I wanted to go I knew that I could depend on her to give me a really honest um, answer based on all this experience that she had and, and really it wasn't until we lost her in the fall of 2018 um, for me very unexpectedly to cancer yeah. um, I mean I, I was actually working on her a project with her a few weeks beforehand and yeah. she did not mention even that she was sick so it came as just oh my gosh. a total shock to me <laughs> um, and I think and that was really it was one of the last things that we did together um, she, she was editing this journal at the time and had spent a lot of time, um, she wanted me to write an article for it, and, and we spent a lot of time talking about it. And, and that was kind of her final <laughs> gift, if you will, um, to me. But when she passed yeah. in 2018, um, you wrote a post on her Facebook page, which mm. I read and um, read with tears <laughs> again recently because you so eloquently um, describe who she was and if it's all right with you I'd like to read part of that sure um, sure okay you wrote and this is 2018 you wrote after her passing we all need people who help us recognize our own worth who will tell us what our superpowers are and give us <laughs> space to use them sometimes with a little or not so little push <laughs> <laughs> we need people who encourage us to be our full selves 
We need people who will connect us to like-minded folk whom we can learn from and with. And she was so, so good at that. I, so I've never good. met anyone who had that gift the way she does. Yeah. And still does, because she's still yeah, I, connecting people. Yeah, well, this, this conversation yes. is an example of that. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. We need people who will treat us like family, because that's just how they treat everyone. We need people whose intellectual brilliance pushes us to pursue a level of scholarship beyond what we imagined we could do. We need people whose presence we never leave without smiling and laughter. We need people whose compassion makes us better people. We need people who aren't afraid to question the status quo and to work to change systems that oppress people. We need people whose artistry and love make the world a more beautiful place. And a little bit further you write, Susan had the incredible ability and courage to be both fiercely intellect, intelligent and fiercely caring. In recent months, Susan and I had stimulating conversations about how to move our field of music education to a more compassionate and equitable place, where teachers are fully prepared to see their students for all that they are and for all the treasures they bring with them to the classroom, something we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a more fitting final memory of my teacher and friend. Susan saw me for me when others were not always willing to. Because she did, I saw me and wasn't afraid. And at the very end, you say, I am thankful to work in a field that continues to question and refine its practices in no small part because of Dr. C's scholarly and interpersonal prowess. Thank you, God, for the life and work of this great woman. And I can only say <laughs> amen and exactly to yeah. what you wrote. Um, it's hard to read that without, without getting tears. Um, I'm wondering when you think about Susan... And, and you write about continuing her legacy. What do you think are some, some ways, some concrete ways that we can do that as leaders in, in the music field and in music education? Um, yeah, that I'll, I guess to answer that, I'll kind of expound on that final memory that I shared. Um, she was writing about hospitality in music education. Um, using this word that we so we very rarely connect with music education right mm -hmm. this word that, yeah. that that evokes um care that evokes comfort um that evokes welcoming right um and you know i it's so interesting i i saw her discover more and more the importance of of, of those qualities in our field and it's not like she didn't always have them but it's almost like you know they were part of who she was and then she saw the value of that within our field with all the things that we're struggling with in music education mm -hmm. with you know inclusion right well if if you're going to include someone you you have to care about them mm -hmm. uh and you have to to go, kind of go out of your way to make them feel welcome uh, and that means seeing them for who they are, really. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about her work with the Boston Children's Chorus, where she spent so much time interviewing parents mm -hmm. to figure out what what value do parents see in this. Um, and this is another time where, when she took a stand, you know, to say that this is something we should actually think about. Like, our our students are coming from families. Those families have, val have values that they've shared with their children. Yeah. So if we're going to create 
you know, effective, if we're, we're going to make effective teaching and learning environments, then we have to understand those values or at least try to. Um, and there are people in the music education world who just saw advocacy as exactly the opposite of that, which was, we have so much to give because we know this music, right? Oh, yes. Um, and so for me, in my work, I guess maybe I should say it a different way. For me, her work inspired me to look more deeply and with more vigor um, for 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 what folks are bringing into into our programs, right? And to really see the importance of that, because um, it was mm -hmm. kind of something that I did you know, when I first started teaching as kind of a rote thing, right? As this is a part of the process. Um, and then sometimes I would help it. I would use that to help me deliver a lesson or, you know, find some more context uh, for a piece of like choral repertoire. Um, but what I didn't always do was really connect those values and try to like create this marriage of values uh within you know my teaching and learning settings so i think that's 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 one way the other big way is um I, every chance i get to connect someone with someone who i know will be there you know for them or get kind of connecting with like-minded folk as i said in the post i do it because i i you know i i know how much it meant to me i know um you know that i that I wouldn't have had so many opportunities if Susan hadn't been the kind of person to do that. So yeah. um, it's kind of learning and, and paying it forward. Hi, Elena here again. Camille and Jason decided to continue their conversation, so we will split this up into two episodes and continue next week with Jason's observations of adventurous programming, honoring other cultures that are not our own, and how we block ourselves from success. Thank you for listening to Out of Rich Darkness. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take the time to leave us a review so that more people can find us. You can help us grow our community of positive change by engaging with us. What's on your mind? Who should we talk to next? We'd love to hear from you on social media.